Lord, we pray all this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Are you saved? Are you saved? That's a question that many Christians ask other people as they are trying to share Christ with them. But what does the question mean? What, what, what exactly does it mean to be saved? What are you asking people uh, to say? One college professor was walking across campus in between classes and he said someone came to him and asked this question, uh, are you saved? And he said almost without thinking his response was, saved from what? And unfortunately, the Christian didn't know what to say. He just stammered. He said, well, I, 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 you know, do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? And that was all the response he could give. And I hope, I hope we could do better than that. But can we? You know, we talk about being saved. We talk about the fact that we will be saved, that we have been saved, that we uh, have salvation. And we use that word uh, not inappropriately so, to speak in kind of shorthand for all that God has done for us through Christ on the cross. But when it comes to the actual, the metaphor, the language of being saved, do we understand what it means? Because the question is, do we know what in fact we are saved from? This morning as we continue looking at the cross in our series called The God Who Saves, we want to continue our goal to better understand what what God has done for us through the cross of Christ. And this morning we come to um, really the heart of the Christ's work on the cross, this concept known as propitiation. That's not a word that we typically use very much in our society, although it would have been very common in Paul's day and earlier than that even in the Old Testament. But we need to understand this word, at least the concept behind it, because, it, again, it lies at the very heart of what Jesus has done for sinners through his death on the cross. And in looking to understand what propitiation is, we will be able to answer the question, saved from what? So this morning, as we look to God's word, I invite you to follow along as I read Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. This morning we see three truths that jump out at us from this passage that will help us to understand better Christ's work on the cross and this, on, uh, this idea of propitiation. We basically see why we need the cross, how God has saved us through the cross, and why it was necessary for him to save us through the cross. Now, that's a bit much to write down. So point number one is this, the dishonoring of God's glory. The dishonoring of God's glory. This is the first truth that we see in our text. Verse 21 begins with the words, but now, but 
now. And these words reflect a transition in Paul's line of thinking and what he is saying. Again, we, we always need to make the point that whatever verse or, or paragraph that we're reading, it doesn't just come out of the sky as that paragraph. It stands with words before it and with words after it. There is a train of thought that the biblical writers are using. And so uh, Paul here is making a shift in his argument. And in order to understand what he really, the, the weight of what he is saying in our passage, we need to understand what he has been saying leading up to this. Paul has begun very early in chapter 1 after his initial greetings in verse uh, uh, in verses 1 through 15, he begins his argument proper, and he begins by talking about the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And the very next verse in chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, what we just read, Paul has been trying to show why we need the righteousness of God that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all that Paul has said for the last uh, two and a half chapters can be summarized in what we just read in verse 23. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short the glory of God. We need God's righteousness because we have no righteousness of our own. We are all sinners who have fallen short the glory of God. Now that begs the question, what does it mean to fall short the glory of God? What does that phrase mean? What is Paul talking about? Well, falling short has behind it the idea of lacking. We lack the glory of God. Now that doesn't mean that Paul expects us to be as glorious as God and somehow we're not. That's not what he's getting at there. In saying that we lack the glory of God, it means we have failed to display the glory of God in our lives. You'll remember perhaps in Genesis chapter 3 we said that the, the, the intention of humanity is to display the glory of God and how we serve Him, how we obey Him, how we trust in Him, and yet through our sin we have failed to do that. What's more, we have failed to appreciate God's glory, to recognize it and to live under it. Again, this is what Paul says way back in chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? The truth that for what can be seen about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Through creation itself, God has revealed himself to humanity, but in our sinfulness, we suppress it. Psalm 19 says, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. And on certain days, that is evident. That is evident. But in our sinfulness, we say that's not God's glory. That's just Mother Nature. That's evolution. That's millions of billions of years of random chance processes that produce that glorious sunset with the birds singing in uh, perfect pitch and harmony a, a natural symphony that cannot be bested by the best human instruments. Oh, no, that's just all random. That's our sinfulness in suppressing the glory of God. And Paul says, In our sinfulness we do not honor God as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in our thinking and foolishness. And in the foolishness of our hearts we were darkened. We claimed to be wise but became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So what brings the wrath of God from heaven? What does God consider to be the very heart of of ungodliness and unrighteousness, dishonoring the glory of his name. Dishonoring the glory of his name. So one pastor explains it like this. Sin is essentially rejection of God and his glory as a supreme value of our lives. Sin considers God and his glory, and instead of loving God's glory and treasuring God's glory, sin exchanges God's glory 
for something else. That is what sin is. And what does Paul say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There isn't anyone who hasn't sinned. And if they've sinned, then they've dishonored God's glory. So we stand here today as a mass of sea of humanity, all having dishonored the glory of God. And Paul is saying specifically in the context that he's writing here that both Jews and Gentiles have dishonored the glory of God. You see, part of the, the point in writing to, to this letter to the Romans, a church he's never been to, is that he knows this church has problems. Uh, to make things very short, the problem exists along ethnic lines between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And, and you know, we've said before, you know, our solution today would be split the church, right? And so over here we have the first Jewish church at Rome, and over here we have the first Gentile church of Rome. And we'll stay over here and do our thing, and they'll stay over there and do their thing. And Paul says, no, that, that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is one day standing before the throne of God with believers, those treasuring Christ in their hearts from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And so we begin that work now, coming together from all different kinds of people. And he, and he knows that part of the temptation for this, for this friction is the Jewish mindset of believing somehow they're better because historically they've been part of the covenant people of God. They've had the law. They've had the sacrifices. They've had the festivals. They've had the land. They've had the Sabbath. And Paul says, none of that matters. Because at the end of the day, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short the glory of God. And of course, you know, they're thinking, so does that mean, does that mean the law was of no purpose? Does that mean it was a waste of time that God shouldn't have given it? And Paul would later say, no, that's, that's not what it means at all. In fact, the law was given to Israel through Moses and it means to bring people to himself. But the law was limited in what it could do. The law could never bring salvation. No one was ever saved by keeping the law of Moses. In fact, the law made us more aware of our sinfulness and how much we needed God, but it could never provide righteousness. And Paul is saying, now, now, all of that is what he's been talking about, but now Christ has come. And God has provided righteousness apart from the law. But he always intended to do this. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The law of Moses has been moving, pointing, driving people towards one thing, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the final demonstration, the final provision of righteousness that brings salvation. He is the one who provides a solution to the problem of all of humanity's dishonoring of God's glory. And so, though all have sinned, Jews and Gentiles alike, now all can know the, righteous, the righteousness of God, not by working for it, not by keeping a law, but by believing, by trusting in Jesus Christ. This morning... I think we can better appreciate what God has done for us in salvation if we feel the weight of what Paul is saying here. No one has an end with God. Before God's throne, we are all on equal footing. The other night, Melinda and I were, were catching part of a movie, and part of that movie was about uh, these people who, who wrote for gossip columns in, uh, in, in some big city. And so it was all about, who do you know that can get me to know somebody famous so I can write about them? And so it was all, who's got an end with who? And it was all this power play stuff. And, and Paul is clear, there's none of that with God. There's none of that. It doesn't matter if, if you were raised in church. 
It doesn't matter if you're a child of privilege. It doesn't matter if your parents have been Christians. It doesn't matter if your parents are missionaries or something else. We all stand level at the feet of God as sinners without distinction who have dishonored the glory of his name. But there is hope. There is hope in Christ. He has come to be our Savior. That should leave us wondering, how is he our Savior? How does God bring righteousness to sinners who trust in Christ? In other words, how does God save us? What are we saved from? How does God bring this about? And that brings us to the second truth that we see, and that is this, the satisfaction of God's wrath. The satisfaction of God's wrath. The truth is, we've been talking about this a lot on Sunday nights, Um, it's harder and harder to find a biblical answer to the question these days, how does God save us? Doctrinal beliefs about salvation that previous generations have taken for granted have in recent days either been forgotten by neglect or done away with intentionally. But if we are honest with the biblical text, the answer will not be hard for us to see. Paul says in verse 23 through 25, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now that's dense. That's great. But let's unpack it. Let's walk through it. Paul says sinners are justified. That is, they are declared righteous. They have a legal standing before God that says they are not guilty of sin. And this comes to us, comes to sinners as a gift of His grace. Justification doesn't come by what we do. It is something God gives us, something we receive through faith. And that gift comes to us, Paul says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God redeemed us. He bought us out of our enslavement and captivity to sin by the death of His Son Christ. It was His shed blood that paid the price for our sins because God put Him forward as a propitiation. And there we are back to that word again, aren't we? This word propitiation lays at the heart of Jesus' work on the cross. It is because Jesus died as a propitiation that we can have justification before God and redemption from sin. So this begs the question, what is propitiation? The NIV has sacrifice of atonement, but it's it's more than that. It's more than that. For Christ to be a propitiation means that when he died on the cross, he suffered in such a way that all of God's wrath towards the sins of his people was satisfied. The judgment that we deserved for our sinfulness, our real guilt before God, was an eternity of hell. But that judgment is not poured out on us. Instead, it was poured out on Christ as he hung on the cross. And the judgment was so satisfied by God in such a way that for those who claim Christ as their Savior, they will never be held accountable again. The judgment of God will never fall upon them because of their sins. Like a loving Father, God may discipline us. But He will never judge us, bring punishment upon us, pour out His righteous wrath against us because of our sin. Because Christ has died in our place, fulfilling, appeasing God's wrath towards us say it louder jerry say it loud amen right i mean that should get you fired up and if it doesn't there's a problem yes i you know i i know it's early and we're tired but this is the core of the gospel and if you don't if you don't take hold of that you, you have no idea of what we've just sung through all that worship set 
and, and you're never going to have joy in life. And frankly, you might not know God. This is the heart of what we believe, of how it is that we have become Christians. Christ bearing the wrath of God for us. And yet this is what, this is what so many find distasteful. Many today say, understanding the atoning work of Christ on the cross in this way is just too violent. We want to talk about that, that bloody religion. In a recent book called The Lost Message of Jesus, one author who calls himself an evangelical Christian wrote that such a view of the cross presents a form of cosmic child abuse. Others argue that it presents a view of God that is just wrong. After all, doesn't the Bible say God is love? God is love. God's not angry at anybody. God's not wrathful. God is love. In the end, though, any problems that we may have with seeing Jesus as a propitiating sacrifice ultimately fall on us as a problem, not the Bible. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. Are we going to let modern sensibilities and our own ideas about God and about the cross shape our understanding of salvation, or are we going to let the Bible do it? And if the Bible tell us the meaning of the cross how it is that the death of Jesus brings about forgiveness, then we will see over and over again the truth that Christ bore God's wrath against our sin. He took the penalty we deserve. Consider, for instance, the great prophecy of Isaiah 53. As a nation, the people of Israel have failed to keep the covenant and they have been exiled from God's land, cut off from His blessings, and yet He promises that He will save them. Though they were to be his servant as a nation, fulfilling his will, keeping his commands, they failed. And yet God promises that one day he will send another servant and he will not fail. He will succeed where Israel could not. He will perfectly fulfill all of God's commands and in doing so, he will bring salvation to God's people. Behold my servant, says the Lord. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Yet surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he not, opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The servant poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Servant came as a substitute for God's people. The judgment they deserved fell on him. This is the consistent teaching of the Bible so that when Paul is writing 2 Corinthians, he can sum up the, the totality of the cross in this one profound sentence. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God offered his son in the place of sinners. Why did he do it? Why did he bring salvation to us in this way? Why did the son willingly go to the cross? The son went to the cross 
the Apostle John says, because of this. Love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the answer then to the question, saved from what? We are saved from God by God. We are saved from the wrath of God by the plan of God in sending His Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. And you understand there's no, there's no hint of child abuse in this. It's not as if the Father says, I want you to go down there and I want you to offer your life. The Son says, I don't want to do that. Not at all. The Father said in eternity past, I want to redeem sinners who will dishonor my glory. And the Son stood up and said, I want to fulfill your will. Oh, Father, let me be the one who goes. Send me to be the one who offers his life as a propitiation for those that you will save. Let me be the one who fulfills your will perfectly so that you might be glorified in the salvation of sinners. This is the great hope and assurance we have before God, brothers and sisters. That though we were condemned as sinners, now, now we stand as justified saints, redeemed by the propitiation of Christ on the cross. The last thing that we see in our passage is this, the vindication of God's righteousness. The vindication of God's righteousness. Paul goes on to say, God saved in this way to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present times that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If we understand Christ's sacrifice, it's an amazing, glorious display of God's mercy, but it's more than that. It's also a vindication of God's righteousness. What does Paul mean by that? He means the offering up of Christ as a propitiating sacrifice ultimately shows us the righteous character of God. Why? Why? Because he says that in his patience, in his divine forbearance, he had previously passed over former sins. In other words, he let sins go unpunished. And that raises a question mark over God's righteousness. You see, our, you know, in, our, in our self-centeredness, we think God, God has to forgive. God is God. Of course he's going to forgive sinners. But what's the problem? It is a problem, though, because God is perfectly just and holy. He can't just forgive sin. Sometimes if my kids do something wrong, but it's out of error, it's out of a foolishness, I can look at them and say, don't worry about it. I may even say, I'll clean up the mess, just be more careful next time. God can't do that. Because he is, he is just, He is holy. And when holiness, perfect holiness, comes in contact with sin, the reaction is righteous, holy, wrath. Sin must be judged. And so for God to forgive sinners, not to forgive people who aren't sinners... Everybody can forgive an innocent person, but all of us, every single one of us here, stand guilty before God as a sinner. How in the world can God legitimately say, it's okay, you're forgiven? That's a problem. That is a problem. And Paul says, the cross fulfills the problem. See, it appears, it appears God's not dealt with sin. It appears though His glory has been dishonored, He's not done anything with it. Think about it like this. Think about the example of King David. In 2 Samuel, we're told that when kings went out to war, David was supposed to be there with him, and yet he was behind at the palace. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And the result was a temptation in his life to commit adultery. He acted on that temptation, 
But more than that, he tried to cover up his adultery by committing murder. And then in chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes to confront David in a sin that only he and Bathsheba apparently know about. And he begins to, to pull him in with a story of two shepherds. One was a very poor shepherd who only had one sheep. And he loved the sheep. He cared for it almost as if it was a child to him. And then there was another wealthy individual who had flocks and flocks of sheep. And a visitor came to visit this wealthy man, and he didn't want to slaughter one of his own sheep, so he commanded that that one sheep be stolen from the poor shepherd, and that it would be slaughtered and presented as the meal to his visitor. Well, King David was raised in the fields, shepherding sheep. I mean, this, this went, it was masterful, divinely inspired by Nathan, or, or, or for Nathan. It went right to the heart of David, and David becomes incensed. He leads him off the throne. Who is this man? Who has done this dreadful thing? He must be punished. And Nathan just looks at him and says, You are the man, David. You are the man. You are the one who has done this despicable thing. You are the one who has despised the word of the Lord. See, God's grace has been poured out on David like no other in all of history. He said, I've taken you the least of, your, uh, of all your brothers, of all your family, and I've made you king over Israel. I've taken you from the shepherd fields, and I've placed my hand of blessing upon you. The throne will never leave you, David. It was ripped from Saul because of his sinfulness, but it's never going to leave you. As long as there's a, a king on the throne of Israel, it will be one of your sons. And yet David despised that word of the Lord by committing sin. And what does David say? David, perhaps with tears in his eyes, certainly a brokenness of heart, says, I have sinned against the Lord. What's the penalty for David's sin according to the Old Testament law? Death. Death twice over. But what does the word of the Lord say when it comes to the prophet Nathan? The Lord has put away your sins. You shall not die. What? Why not? Where is the justice in that, God? This man has at best committed adultery, perhaps rape, and then he's covered it up by killing the, the poor woman's husband in the, in, the, in the guise of honor in battle. Why isn't he put to death like the law says? Your law says, God. How can you pass over that? How can you let that go? More than that, I would argue that the entire Old Testament sacrificial system is all an affront to God's righteousness. You say, how do you get that? I get that because Hebrews tells me that. What is the rituals of atonement in the Old Testament based upon? The sacrifice of animals, of bulls and goats. And yet, what does the author of Hebrews say? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That doesn't mean now that it's in the new covenant it doesn't work. No, it never worked. It is impossible. All of those sacrifices, year after year after year, perhaps a special sacrifice, went and offered the temple because of some sin. And Hebrews says, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't atone for sin. It doesn't bring justification. It doesn't bring reconciliation to God. It doesn't bring redemption from sins. It's not propitiatory. It doesn't appease His wrath. The blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. So what about it, God? You lay this thing out, tell people to do it, and for years look over their sins, knowing full well those sacrifices don't do anything. Are you just or are you not just? Are you holy or are you not holy? Are you righteous or are you not righteous? And Paul says in the cross we have our answer. 
Yes. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is loving. Yes, God is righteous. Yes, God is just. Why? Why? Because in the offering of His Son, God provided real and lasting and perfect atonement for sins. The sacrifice of Christ shows that God was right and established in the Old Testament sacrificial system because it was based on the real sacrifice that was to come in Christ. What does Hebrews go on to tell us? Everything in the Old Covenant, everything is simply a shadow that falls across the course of time based on the reality of Christ himself. So, why did God say, have a high priest? Because his son was going to come and be the high priest. Why did he say, have these sacrifices? Because his son was going to come and be the sacrifice. Why do we have this temple? Because his son was going to come and be the temple for God's people. And so every single time one of those animals was offered in faith, what did God do? He didn't look at the animal and say, oh, I'm happy with that. No, he looked forward and said, yes, my son is coming. My son is coming. My son is coming. My son is coming. And God could look at David and say, you will not die. I'm passing over your sins. Because he knew that one day his own son would come. And he would bear God's wrath against David's sin. He would take the judgment that David deserved. And so Paul is saying, God is both the justifier of sinners. He is both the one who says, declared righteous, innocent, though you are not. And yet he remains just. Why? Why? Because Christ has come and he has perfectly satisfied God's wrath against sin. Do you understand now why someone like a John Newton, who lived a horribly despicable life, I mean embodied the phrase sinner, depraved. And when he encounters the gospel, he can write words of astonishment saying, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We're all wretches and worse. And yet in the fullness of God's grace and glory and in perfect fulfillment of his righteous character, he has provided salvation from his wrath through the death of his own son, Christ. In 1759, William Cooper was 28 years old and he had a total mental breakdown. After trying three different ways to commit suicide, he became convinced he was condemned by God to hell beyond all hope. Four years later, Cooper was committed to St. Albans Insane Asylum. And by God's grace, the man who attended the patients there, Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, was a Christian who loved God and the gospel. Cotton also loved Cooper and continually held out hope to him in the gospel. He continually held out Christ as the means of salvation, despite the fact that Cooper would insist time and time again he could never be saved. He was just too sinful. After six months, Cooper found a Bible that had intentionally been left there on a garden bench, and he began reading. And he got to John chapter 11, and he says in his, in his journal, reflecting back on that time, that it was in the, the glory of Christ that he began to have hope that perhaps salvation might be available to him. But then he landed on the paragraph that we just read, that we just heard from in Romans chapter 3. And he says he got to verse 25, and everything changed. Cooper writes, Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness showed upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made, my pardon sealed in His blood, and all the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. He understood. This is why. 
This is why God could save a miserable wretch of a man like Cooper. Because Christ had died in his place. In June 1765, Cooper left St. Albans and lived and ministered within the church for the next 35 years. God produced great fruit from his life. Not least of which was the writing of wonderful hymns like ones that we cherish so much. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Because of the death of Christ for us, our sins can be forgiven and we can be declared righteous before God having forgiveness and reconciliation to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have gazed into the very heart of the gospel today, I pray, Lord, that you would cement its truths in our minds and our hearts.